we're back with another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. I'm Jana Gardner, and I'm here with Dana Spears. That was me. So, in case you're joining us for the first time, we're attorneys here at CAR in the Member Legal Services Department. Uh, we do a lot of things here at CAR. We take calls in the legal hotline, write educational materials, conduct webinars, and now we bring you this monthly podcast. Woohoo! So we do all of that to provide CAR members with all the legal information and advice they need to stay in business and stay out of trouble. That's right. Now for today's podcast, our main topic is emotional support animals. And we have a special guest joining us to chat with us about that issue. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to that. So before we get to that, we have our much-anticipated segment, the Form Spotlight. Our Form Spotlight this month focuses on the additional signature addendum, CAR Form ASA. As everyone is likely aware, the RPA and other purchase agreements have two lines for signature. But what do you do when you have more than two buyers or two sellers? It's a really good question and one of the most common calls we get on the hotline. I'd say it comes in all the time. I have three buyers, three sellers, what do I do? But that is where the form ASA comes in. Additional parties still need to sign. And so since they can't fit on the main document, They can sign on this separate addendum to the contract in which they agree to the contract's terms and conditions. Mm -hmm. The ASA gets the job done. You can include up to three additional signers on each ASA. So basically what that means, you can have signers number one and two sign on the contract The original contract. Mm -hmm. And then if you have buyer, seller number three, number four, number five they can sign on the additional signature addendum. And you just keep adding ASAs. And the yeah, more if, yeah, if right. you have a really complicated transaction <laughs> with more than five parties on one side, yeah. sure, then you can add an additional form. But yeah, that'll get you at least up to five with one ASA. Okay, now I'm looking at the ASA form and I see blank spaces below the signature lines for each seller or buyer. Um, what are these used for? So, great question. These are blank spaces for the parties to add their initials where the parties can opt into the liquidated damages or arbitration paragraphs in the purchase agreement, Mm -hmm. assuming their fellow sellers or buyers have done so on the contract. Mm -hmm. So, I think everyone's familiar with on page 8 of the contract, paragraphs 21 and 22 refer to liquidated damages and the arbitration clause. Those have to be initialed by all parties in the contract for those paragraphs to come in and be binding on everyone. So since you have these signers who are signing on a separate piece of paper, this will allow them to get their initials on those provisions and incorporate those into the contract so that the people signing on the ASA are agreeing to the identical terms as everybody else. Mm. All right, and I think it's important to keep in mind that each time a new form is added to the transaction that requires signatures, a new ASA form will be required so that all parties can sign. Mm Right, so you simply make the reference to the document being signed at the top of the ASA form and then have you know the other party sign. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you're adding the ASA to the purchase contract, the RPA, there's a box at the top of the ASA form for you to say these are additional signatures to mm-hmm. the purchase contract. Or if you are adding additional signatures to the disclosures or other forms, whatever it might be, you'll check the other box and you'll write in and reference the name of the form or the disclosure that these signatures go along with. So it's a pretty simple form. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. Okay. All right. So today, as we mentioned, we're lucky to have a very special guest with us. Joining us today is Amanda Byun, who's a CAR member legal services attorney who actually specializes in the area of fair housing law 
including the laws pertaining to emotional support animals. Hi, Amanda. Welcome. Hello, ladies. Good Hi. to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. So we're going to jump in right off yeah, with our first right question. In. All right. So what is an emotional support animal and how is it different than a service animal? Thank you for those questions. First of all, both emotional support animal and a service animal fall under a broader category of what is called an assistance animal. Mm -hmm. Under federal and state fair housing laws, if you have a request by a tenant or occupant for an assistance animal to reside with the tenant who has a disability, the law requires the housing provider to provide what's called reasonable accommodation to allow that animal to reside with that person. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so maybe a more specific example of what an emotional support animal is. Yes, of course. So an emotional support animal uh, provides emotional or cognitive support that alleviates one or more symptoms of a disability, typically a mental disability hmm. of a tenant or an occupant. An right. example hmm. of an emotional support animal uh, that most people are familiar with are your average cats and dogs, mm -hmm. but it could be any animal typically that's considered a normal household pet, but we don't call them pets. We call them <laughs> emotional support animals. Right. So rabbits, turtles, birds, snakes, fish. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. There's no limit. <laughs> so what are examples then of a service animal? Well, that's a very good question. There is a distinction under the law of what is considered a service animal. Typically, they are primarily limited to dogs and miniature horses. Sure. that are specifically trained to perform a task to assist an individual with a disability. And this disability can either be physical or mental disability. Right, so it can be like a dog. It's usually we see dogs. We don't usually see miniature horses too much, but it could be a miniature horse. Yes. <laughs> okay. And um, not very common, but it also could be an animal like a monkey that has been trained. Hmm. So to give an example of a service animal for a person with a physical disability would be your uh, guide dog. Mm, seeing eye dog. Exactly. Mm -hmm. A person with a visual impairment may have an animal, uh, typically a dog or a horse, that can assist them moving around. Sure. So that everyone is very familiar with. Less un, uh, not well known, but also can be a service animal is perhaps a dog. Mm -hmm. that has been trained to, let's say, wake someone who has a disability like um, PTSD. That's a mental disability, but if they're suffering from night terror due to their PTSD, some dogs can be trained to wake their handler mm -hmm. so they, you know, that alleviates a symptom of their disability. Right, so you may not be able to see it. For seeing eye dogs, you kind of, it's evident. Exactly. But a mental, one that's helping with a mental issue, that's... Typically, that's yeah. the distinction. Most people, uh, most housing providers have no problems when they can physically see an obvious disability, like mm -hmm. someone is blind or someone is in a wheelchair and they have an animal, they request an accommodation to reside with them. Most people understand what's going mm -hmm. on and have no problems with that. We get into a little bit more difficulty when the disability is not physically obvious. Mm -hmm. um, it could be... Um, physical disability or even mental disability, that's not so obvious to an average person. And that's where we get into a little bit of a, a discussion of what is allowed and what isn't. Right, and those are the kinds of calls we get on the legal hotline right. for the most part, yeah. is people when they get these requests and they're 
maybe skeptical or just a little bit confused about what their obligations are. Yeah. Right. Definitely. So how should a landlord or property manager respond if told by an applicant or existing tenant that they have an emotional support animal? Great question. So first of all, every housing provider should have a written policy on how to handle any kind of request for reasonable accommodation under fair housing law. And you should always follow that written policy. And we'll get into it a little bit later, but uh, that policy should include a standard for reasonableness. That if the request is reasonable, you should allow that animal to reside. Mm. Final point that we get a lot of questions on on the hotline is about the obtaining of documentation for the disability. So what kind of documentation should a landlord ask for or expect to see, or what can they require a tenant to provide them in the way of documentation? Great question. So there are two distinctions um, for one for, for service animals and another for emotional support animals. If you have a request for reasonable accommodation for a service animal, you're actually allowed to ask these two questions, and if the answers are yes to both, then that's your documentation. You can put those answers in writing for your file, but they don't have to provide you further written documentation. And those questions are, number one, are you an individual with a disability? Second question, what disability-related task has the animal been trained to perform? Okay, so if the an- so they can ask those questions, yes. and if the answer is, yes, I have a disability, and this animal you know, helps guide me around because I'm vision impaired. That's it. That's the end of the Exactly. Okay. And you would document that for your file, put it in, in, in the tenant app um, folder, mm-hmm. and that's, um, that's the only documentation you need. Okay. Versus emotional support animal, and this is where it gets tricky. Okay. Uh, emotional support animals, as I stated earlier, are not service animals. Mm-hmm. They're support animals. And for them, um, you can ask for what's called a written verification. A written verification is essentially a note. It can be a doctor's note, but it does not have to be from a medical professional. It can be from a reliable third party in a position to know about the condition that the tenant or occupant may have and the reason for the accommodation. And this note just simply needs to say this person has a disability under California law and request reasonable accommodation to have this animal reside with them due to this disability. They do not have to identify the underlying disability and they do not have to identify what this animal has been trained to do because as we explained earlier, emotional support animals are not trained to do anything unlike service animals. The mere fact that their existence in the lives of their handler assists them and alleviates um, one or more symptoms of their disability is what their their task is. Mm-hmm. So they're not trained. They're not. They don't have to fetch anything. They don't have to guide you to anything. Just their mere presence in the person's life makes them feel better, essentially. Mm, sure. So just to reiterate, that you can't require that that note be from a doctor or a psychiatrist or any sort of particular individual. It's just a reliable third party, so that could be a variety of people, potentially. That is correct. Um, Although it's commonly provided by a medical professional, the law recognizes the notes from other reliable third party providers. Mm -hmm. 
as an example, um, if you have, let's say, a school counselor mm-hmm. who is familiar with a child's condition, perhaps a child has ADHD, mm-hmm. and um, the, the note from a counselor could, could be considered a reliable third-party uh, verification. That makes sense. Yeah. And uh, th- that note is essentially from a, a third party just has to say how they're familiar with this person's disability, mm-hmm. their contact information, and the function limitation of the person who's making the request. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, so one thing you mentioned earlier that we want to expand on a little bit is when someone comes to you with this, it's expected that you provide a reasonable accommodation mm-hmm. uh, for their request. So can we talk a little bit about what might be considered a reasonable versus an unreasonable request from a potential applicant or tenant? That's a great question. We This is another one that we get often mm-hmm. on the legal hotline. Yeah. So the law specifically says you cannot say due to the type, breed, or size of the animal that it is an unreasonable request. Meaning, can you say, oh, pit bulls are dangerous animals as a breed, Mm -hmm. and so I can say it's not reasonable to accommodate. That law specifically says, no, that is not an acceptable answer. You cannot limit by breed type or size of the animal. Mm -hmm. So, more examples. Can you have, as a type, a snake? Yes. Mm -hmm. You cannot say only dogs or cats allowed. If they potentially have a snake as a type, it it is not unreasonable request. Can they say, I have a 70-pound golden retriever? Can a housing provider say, no, I have a 50-pound weight limit for the animal? Mm -hmm. That is not considered reasonable, unreasonable to restrict. Mm, okay. But what if you get an animal that is a problem that is really, you know, doing damage to the property or biting people? Is there anything that can be done? Is there anything that a landlord can do in that circumstance? Yes. So s- examples of what would be unreasonable accommodation request is if you know specifically for this specific animal being requested has a history of being a danger to human beings or causing damage to real property, that would be grounds for denying the request. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you have a prospective tenant and they say, we have an emotional support animal, I have a dog, um, you have to first consider the request. But let's say you call up their prior landlord and ask how they were as a tenant and the prior landlord tells you that this animal completely destroyed all the kitchen cabinets in the unit. Mm. So you have specific evidence that this animal causes damage to real property. In that situation, most likely, it is okay for a landlord to deny that specific animal because of the known prior history of that animal's misbehavior. Mm. However, if everything is a case-by-case determination, so you should always call Sierra Legal Hotline to discuss any case before you say no. And even if you were to deny this particular animal, you should always give the tenant an alternative, as in, do they have an alternative animal they would like instead mm-hmm. to reside with them, to assist them with their disability, and essentially have an open dialogue. It's called interactive process. You never want to just say flat out no. You always want to have a, a full discussion. 
Sure, and I'm going to throw a question at you here that I, <laughs> that just occurred to me, but this comes up on the hotline a lot. Uh, you mentioned like the pit bull thing, um, and when it comes to accommodations, one of the questions we get a lot is from landlords who say, my insurance won't cover this, you know, I, can't, I have a pit bull restriction. Oh, I would love to accommodate, but my insurance says no, or the HOA says no, or, you know, that there's some other rule that they say is preventing them from going along with this. Is that enough? Can they just say, sorry, or is there more they need to do? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, that also goes to reasonableness or unreasonableness of adult accommodation. So for both homeowners insurance companies and for HOAs that may have rules and regulations of what kind of animals that may reside in the complex, both also have to follow federal and state fair housing laws, meaning if a prospective tenant requests a housing provider, the landlord, to accommodate, the HOA and or the homeowner's insurance company also are required to reasonably accommodate. Mm -hmm. So if a landlord has to accommodate because they cannot discriminate against a pit bull, the insurance company should also provide an exemption for this accommodation for this disabled resident. Um, Same thing for the HOA. If they have, let's say, a breed restriction or a weight restriction, they should waive that restriction because there is a fair housing, reasonable accommodation request being made. Hmm. Well, what if you have, let's say, a tenant in an apartment building and he's allergic to dogs, and now you have a request? Yes, so that is actually a question we do get. Um, There are many people who are allergic either to cat or dog dander, Mm -hmm. and then you're dealing with competing disabilities. So does that mean the first person who was there trumped the second person who has a disability? Not necessarily. Again, if you become aware that someone is making a request to have an animal reside with them, but you're also aware another resident in the complex nearby has an allergy to such an animal, you can't outright just say flat out no. You have to involve yourself in what's called, again, interactive process. You have to open a dialogue with the, the person requesting it. You have to try to attempt to find an alternative solution. Are there ways to accommodate both persons? If it's a large complex, can you find the, the new requesting tenant a unit that's further away from the existing tenant who has the allergy? Is it possible to provide air filter system to the tenant who has the allergy? You have to sort of explore alternatives and discuss um, options with the parties involved. And if after such a thorough discussion, you can reach an alternative accommodation, that is the solution for everyone involved. (laughs) All right, so we have one more question for Amanda today. What are the potential consequences for landlords who violate these laws? There are many and severe consequences. Mm. Sure. First, it is extremely easy for a victim at no cost to file a complaint or a lawsuit when it comes to fair housing law, uh, rights. They can either get the assistance of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing, which is the California state agency in charge of enforcing fair housing laws in California, or they could even go to the numerous nonprofit organizations throughout the state that at no cost to the victim pursue a lawsuit uh, Mm. for fair housing law violation. But towards the actual consequences, you could be subject to civil fines, 
You could be subject to compensatory damages that is awarded to the victim, punitive damages if they find that your actions are so egregious and severe. You could also be awarded attorney fees. So uh, the nonprofits and the state agency that pursues the case on behalf of the victim, they could be awarded attorney fees by the defendant. So they can right. charge the landlord, basically. Mm -hmm. So not only are you paying damages, but now you're paying for the other side's attorneys, too. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes that could be a lot more expensive sure. than the fines. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And finally, you also can be disciplined by the Department of Real Estate mm -hmm. and your local association sure. for violation of the Code of Ethics because fair housing laws are also part of the Code of Ethics mm -hmm. and duties of a realtor to comply with. Right, so it's yeah, really important um, you know, both to stay out of trouble and just to be doing the right thing and abiding by the Code of Ethics and the real estate law. Right, to follow not. these yeah, rules. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, so thank you so much to Amanda for joining us today. I uh, just want to let everybody know who's been listening to this and thinking, wow, this is really complicated and that's a lot of information. We do have a lot of this in writing for you mm -hmm. on our website car.org under the risk management section. You can find a lot of this same information, most of it prepared by Amanda, uh, <laughs> written down. We have a Q&A on uh, pets and service animals. We have a legal tool uh, on emotional support animals. We have some uh, old webinars that Amanda's presented that are still around. So I will make sure to link all of that in the notes for this episode so that anyone who's interested can find it and review it and make sure they follow all the rules and stay out of trouble. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us, Amanda. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So this wraps up another episode of the Legal Matters Podcast. Just a reminder that this is just one of the many ways we are reaching out to you from the Member Legal Services Department. There are numerous resources and services available to you at car.org. Of course, CAR members can always call the legal hotline with any questions or legal issues at 213-739-8282 during the week from 9 to 6 and 10 to 2 on Saturdays for transactional questions. And as Dana said, we have many resources available for you on our website at car.org. Uh, we have our legal tools, which are quick hit informational topics on various issues with like quick guides, PowerPoint presentations, and videos. And that's on top of our legal Q&As on numerous issues, our monthly legal live webinars uh, put on by CAR attorneys and guest speakers, our disclosure charts, and even more. So make sure to go to car.org, go to the risk management section, and you'll find pretty much all that Member Legal has to offer. You can reach out to us here at the podcast with any suggestions for topics or forms you'd like to see covered in upcoming episodes during our form spotlight or question of the month segments. Mm -hmm. Uh, send an email to legalpodcast at car.org. That's legalpodcast at car.org. Also in this feed, be sure to check out Legal Bedtime Stories, some bonus podcast content presented by CAR Assistant General Counsel Neil Kalin. In each episode of Legal Bedtime Stories, Neil will tell you an entertaining but also educational story inspired by true events. Check out the first episode now, The Case of the Defective Diving Board. Mm, it's really good. Yeah. Well, thank you everyone so much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll talk to you next time. See you later.